his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. The news around COVID continues to get better. Pfizer with a major announcement today saying its COVID-19 vaccine is 100% effective in children ages 12 to 15. The news around COVID continues to be concerning. Springtime surge, cases spiking in at least half the country. Why the head of the CDC is warning of impending doom. This week on 880 In-Depth, what we know about the new surges in our area. The fastest growing age group uh, in our hospital uh, are folks between the age of 50 and 59, but we're also seeing concerning increases in the 40 to 49 age group. And you'll also hear an honest conversation with an emergency room doctor still on the front lines. She talks to us about vaccine equity, COVID deniers, and why she thinks whatever surge we're seeing now will never come close to how bad it was a year ago. I remember low points where I even questioned, was like, wow, can I go on? Is this right for me? And of course, each time I I ended with, yes, I can. Welcome to 880 In-Depth from WCBS News Radio 880. I'm Tim Scheldt. And hopefully by now you know that each week we take a topic and do our best to unpack that subject to provide some context about the news we cover here. COVID continues to be a topic we want to know more about especially given the dueling narratives of reopening our communities and the growing number of cases being reported in some spots. One of those places is New Jersey. And that's why we start there this week at University Hospital in Newark. And our conversation with the president and CEO there, Dr. Sharif El-Nahal. He's a former New Jersey commissioner of health and got on the phone this week with our Peter Haskell. Doctor, we see the case count in New Jersey is up about 40% over the past two weeks. What are you seeing where you are? We're seeing similar increases, Peter. So first of all, uh, we're not only seeing an increase in positivity rates uh, and positive cases overall in the Newark metro area, uh, we're also seeing a rise in hospitalizations. We've seen an increase uh, to 45 hospitalizations up from below 20s just a few weeks ago. So that's uh, almost double uh, the folks being admitted and the daily admissions are also increasing at a similar rate. So we're pretty concerned. Uh, The other concerning aspect of this is that we're also seeing younger uh, folks being admitted at much higher rates than we were previously. The fastest growing age group uh, in our hospital uh, are folks between the age of 50 and 59 but we're also seeing concerning increases in the 40 to 49 age group. Uh, And there aren't many possible explanations for this other than the rise of variants that are more severe than the original virus. Um, The vaccination of older populations is extremely helpful because I do think we would have seen a very sharp increase in that population as well, if not for vaccination, but overall still pretty concerning. 
So tell us about the variants. Do you do you have a sense of which variants you're seeing, and and, and what's the impact of them, and how do you treat patients with these variants? Well, for one thing, Peter, I wish we had more data on variants. We cannot uh, really sequence more than two percent of positive tests because of the lack of capacity to do so. This requires a multi-day complex process with very specialized equipment that is not widely available. Uh, but if we were sequencing more, I think we would probably see uh, the B117 variant, the variant that came out of the UK, uh, dominating here. It tends to dominate uh, wherever it goes, essentially. It's certainly dominated in the UK and other parts of Europe. Uh, and the CDC does believe that it's becoming much more predominant across the country. And we know that from the data we do have, that it is the most common variant other than wild type here in New Jersey. Uh, the concerning thing is that it's not only more transmissible, uh, but some data suggests that it's also more severe. And because of what we're seeing with younger populations being more symptomatic and requiring admission, uh, I do think that's what's happening here. Do these patients necessarily get treated any differently? These patients are treated with the best evidence and the way that we've been treating patients overall. They get a combination usually of a drug called dexamethasone, which is a steroid, and remdesivir, uh, which is a, a antiviral therapy that's effective against COVID-19. Uh, and the good news is that we're discharging successfully over 90% of patients who are admitted. Uh, if you do require ICU care, the mortality rate is still around the same as it always has been, unfortunately, but we're successful in preventing hospitalization as much as possible. And even for folks who are hospitalized, if you don't have to go to the ICU, your chances of being discharged are, of course, much higher. We're more than a year into this pandemic now, where, you know, we've kind of had this ebb and flow. You've got these variants now. Are there any kind of new mysteries that are starting to crop up where you're wondering about either symptoms or treatments or, I don't know, you tell us. Uh, there are a number of promising therapeutics in the pipeline. I think as we progress, the importance of effective antiviral therapies and uh, more monoclonal antibody therapies uh, will be important. The big question here uh, and the wild card, I, I should really say, in terms of when this pandemic uh, will really come to an end is uh, whether the rise of variants will make the existing vaccines less effective. We don't exactly know the effectiveness of the Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines against particular variants like the Brazilian variant uh, or South Africa. There's very limited data on that. We do know that they are quite effective, albeit a little bit less effective against the UK variant, which is very promising news. And the fact that you're seeing, again, uh, way fewer hospitalizations uh, in older age groups that have largely been vaccinated is very promising. But uh, if a variant were to rise that is uh, very resistant to responsiveness uh, in the vaccines and the monoclonal antibody therapies, uh, we may be requiring boosters and the pandemic would stretch on much longer than we hope. And we hope that doesn't happen, but we have to be vigilant and prepared for that. Have symptoms been either different or more stubborn? Are you seeing anything new with that? Other than younger populations experiencing the typical symptoms, shortness of breath, uh, low oxygenation in their blood, 
um, and other concerning, um, you know, effects of the virus, it's pretty much uh, the same type of presentation, just a little bit more severe than we used to see, and again, in younger age groups. What about vaccine reactions? Clearly, people are concerned about that. The research shows these vaccines are safe, but are, are you seeing anything that catches your eye? Well, one promising thing is that we have not seen a single hospitalization, even amongst the rise uh, in admissions over the last week or so. We have not seen a single admission of somebody who has been vaccinated. We have had uh, a few cases where folks were diagnosed for, for folks who have been fully vaccinated. But again, they're, they're not perfect and completely prevented COVID-19, but they're near perfect in preventing hospitalization and so far 100% effective at preventing death. So uh, that is very promising news and really underscores how effective these vaccines are. In terms of side effects and adverse events, uh, we really have not had many at all. In fact, the allergic reactions we've had uh, have been mild. We've had epinephrine, uh, an emergency medical staff on hand in case somebody had a severe allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, as it's called. Uh, but we really haven't had to exercise that yet, which is very promising and just underscores how rare severe allergic reactions and adverse events are with these vaccines. You talked about good news. Speaking of good news, the Pfizer shot has been approved for people 12 and older now. What is this going to mean and how will that impact schools? It's very promising news. So uh, we were not sure how effective these vaccines would be against children. And we know that children's immune systems are still developing. So that was one wild card in terms of the science. Uh, and now we're seeing Pfizer and hopefully we'll see the other two vaccines, which are also be also being tested in minors, um, extremely effective. So uh, this is very promising news for uh, the goal of getting everybody back to school in person. There's a major problem with the digital divide in communities of color and evidence is showing that uh, poor and urban communities are affected asymmetrically by the virtual education um, you know, delivery that's been happening over the last year or so. Uh, and so what this does is it really accelerates uh, the likelihood that we'll be able to bring uh, more kids back in school safely. And of course, the vaccination effort among teachers and staff at schools has been ongoing and is extremely important. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, this week warned about, quote, what she called impending doom. How concerned are you about another surge? I'm quite concerned, and I think what Dr. Walensky was trying to convey uh, is that if we are not vigilant in this last mile, if you will, for the pandemic as vaccinations are accelerating every day, we do see the finish line. But she meant to convey, I think, that um, you know, we're not crossed in terms of the finish line yet. We have not actually uh, met the goal of herd immunity. And so uh, in the meantime, as long as cases are continuing to spread and go up, the chances that harmful variants and variants that are resistant to the existing vaccines uh, goes up. And so I think uh, we have to really take her warning seriously, uh, continue to follow the restrictions, even if you are vaccinated. Uh, the CDC has relaxed. Uh, some things that now vaccinated people can do that they weren't able to do before. And I think they'll continue to look for opportunities for that. Uh, but following all of their guidelines and the guidelines of state health departments, wherever you are, uh, are very important. It, it seems like a lot of people just want to get out. We see people are traveling for spring break. You know, a lot of Jersey schools are out. What do you tell folks? How do you convince them 
we 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 haven't finished that last mile yet. I understand the impetus for doing that. Uh, everybody is tired of having to wear masks and you know be restricted in terms of things that they were previously able to do, particularly travel to see loved ones and family and friends. Um, what I would say is that if we are just patient for a little while longer, uh, we will be able to do all of those things safely sooner. Uh, and so uh, as long as folks uh, do not follow these guidelines, especially if they are unvaccinated, uh, they are at risk of getting this disease, and this remains a deadly disease. It remains a disease that can cause not only acute illness and death in the short term, but can cause something called long hauler syndrome, uh, which causes complications and side effects, uh, shortness of breath that can be pretty severe six months out and even longer. Uh, so I would not risk it for yourself, for your loved ones, uh, and I would really try to follow these guidelines as much as possible. Whether it's a, a surge, a bump, a plateau, I'm curious about your staff and, and dealing with another surge or whatever you might call it, both physically and psychologically. How, how prepared are they to deal with this again? I appreciate that you're expressing that concern because it's something I've been concerned about from the beginning. We have uh, staff that have now had to deal with two ways of this virus who come to work every day, uh, risking their own health to be able to treat people. Uh, and from the beginning, these have been the heroes on the front line who have allowed uh, folks to recover and be discharged after getting this disease. And so uh, one thing that I want folks to know is that th these are heroes that are now at increasing rates, experiencing post-traumatic stress, uh, having to take off work for that reason and others. Uh, and as long as they are compromised, we're all compromised because these are the folks who will treat you if you get sick, including for things other than COVID-19. These are the same professionals that are treating all of your health needs. And so I think uh, paying attention to that and being mindful uh, of what these frontline heroes are experiencing uh, is really important. You know, along the same lines, I'm curious about the impact of COVID on the healthcare system. What 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 have we learned about it and what concerns do you have about the system's ability to handle something similar down the road? We have a lot to learn about that. And I think especially when we get some breathing room after we reach herd immunity and the pandemic largely comes to an end, uh, we have to do a full forensic analysis of all of the vulnerabilities of the healthcare system. The first thing uh, is that we're no longer able to rely on the just-in-time supply chain for things like personal protective equipment. It was necessary for hospitals and clinics to only carry the inventory they needed for any period of time uh, to remain financially afloat. We need a different system that allows for every healthcare institution in this country to have some degree of a stockpile just in case this happens again. Um, and of course, also hospital capacity. The fact that uh, again, we have only the number of beds that are needed in normal times because of economic pressures on hospitals. The number of hospital closures we've had uh, just over the last several years has been uh, very high, especially in the New York and New Jersey metro areas. And so we really have to think about ways that we can build surge capacity more easily uh, in case this happens again. And unfortunately, I don't think COVID is going to completely go away even after we reach herd immunity. There may be pockets of outbreaks, just like we see with diseases like measles, for which we've had a vaccine for many years. And uh, we may see local surges that happen 
uh, unexpectedly with a virus that has propensity to mutate uh, and potentially become, again, resistant to vaccines. So uh, all of that is, is something we really have to think about from a policy standpoint and plan for well. You know, I'm curious, a year ago, we kept hearing about testing, testing, testing. Looking now, are we testing enough? I don't think we are testing enough, and I'm glad you asked about that because everybody is focused on vaccination, which is, of course, the road out of this pandemic, ultimately. But we're not going to need to uh, completely do away with COVID-19 testing. In fact, uh, we need to probably do more testing, especially screening uh, in institutions like schools and potentially even before travel uh, in airports, which is why I think the Biden administration has invested so heavily uh, in testing uh, both point-of-care rapid testing, which is very important important for screening, but also PCR testing for people who are symptomatic or have been exposed to somebody with COVID-19. And so we really can't take our eye off the ball in terms of continuing to build testing capacity. We should be able to get anybody a COVID-19 test on the same day and get the result back within 24 hours. And unfortunately, we're still not there yet, even at this point in the pandemic. I want to ask you about vaccine equity. This is something that's been talked about from the beginning when the first vaccine was available. And still in New Jersey, blacks have received just 5% of shots. Why is that? It's really unfortunate that we're not extending access to vaccination to black and brown communities to the degree that we should. Uh, For example, the city of Newark is only about 6% fully vaccinated at this point, when you compare that to a general population throughout this country, which is around 16% and similar fully vaccinated percentages in New Jersey and New York, uh, that's concerning and it's frankly uh, unjust. We really need to uh, do as much as we can to extend access. I think the reasons are multifold. The first is uh, for a lot of folks, it's not as easy, especially if they don't have access to amenities that higher income groups have, you know, reliable broadband, the ability to uh, call and get an appointment uh, as soon as possible uh, is harder for people in poorer communities and communities of color uh, more generally. Uh, I do think the uh, rates of folks who are willing to take the vaccine have been growing. So, for example, in Newark, only about 40 percent of people were willing to take the vaccine as soon as it was made available. Now that number is much closer to 65 percent in a recent survey. Uh, So folks really wanted to wait and see in many cases, and all of the efforts that we've been doing to educate folks and dispel myths about the vaccine are working. And so we cannot throw up our hands and just say hesitancy uh, for people of color uh, and therefore not make as much effort as possible. We need to uh, all take ownership of everybody getting vaccinated because, frankly, it matters. That's the whole concept of herd immunity, a person of color uh, who may not live in your community getting vaccinated has everything to do with your risk. Because if that person gets COVID-19, you may get it as well. Uh, So that's something I really want to emphasize, that it's on all of us to get as many people as possible vaccinated. There's a a, a vaccine site opening in Newark, a new one. Is, Is that enough? I think it will go a long way. And so the FEMA site that's opening today has demonstrated effectiveness in getting more people of color vaccinated, but also more people locally vaccinated. And so the Philadelphia example is a really important one. The community vaccination center there showed a marked increase uh, in black and brown residents uh, getting the vaccine. Uh, It is accessible. It is easy. 
Uh, a lot of it can be accessed within a day. Uh, and the important thing is that it comes with significant stock of vaccines that hasn't been made available up to this point. And so the opening of that center is really important. And I'm glad the governor will be there today uh, with a number of other officials to celebrate this. Uh, and now it's on all of us to make sure folks know that is an option on top of the other larger vaccination sites that are already available. I want to look at the big picture with you. Vaccine supplies are being boosted and will be boosted in the coming weeks. What do you think things will look like four weeks from now or six weeks from now or eight weeks from now? I think supply is going to have a step function increase uh, by mid-April. All of the indicators are there. The Biden administration purchased hundreds of millions of more doses and accelerated uh, the vaccine development pipeline. Uh, all of that is really going to bear fruit in the coming weeks. And in fact, you're already starting to see increases in state allocations uh, because of that. And so I think those investments uh, are extremely important because we're still at a point where uh, there are more people who want shots in arms than we have supply for. That needs to change as soon as possible. And you're seeing President Biden uh, move up the dates where every adult will be eligible for vaccination because of the increasing supply. So do expect that you'll be able to get your vaccination appointment much faster in the coming weeks. Do you have a sense of what questions we'll still be asking this summer? You know, I think we'll be uh, asking questions about, uh, you know, when exactly we'll be safe again to open schools, summer camps, uh, and really uh, opening re everything else that still remains restricted and the ways that we can open them safely. So, for example, I know, again, that the Biden administration has invested heavily in screening testing, rapid testing. What will that mean for uh, the ability to open things that weren't able to be opened before? But also uh, the uh, need for something like a vaccine passport uh, for traveling safely or doing other activities. That is a controversial topic right now, uh, but it is something that I know that the private sector is looking into uh, and other businesses, small businesses, restaurants even, um, you know, you may see that more and more folks will want proof of your vaccination before you're able to engage again. And so that debate, well, I think, will really heat up uh, by summer when these technological options will be available uh, for businesses to make use of. Dr. Lohal, is there anything else that you want to add? Just to uh, remind folks that, uh, you know, we have been on the front lines of this from the beginning for uh, this community, which is majority minority community that has experienced the worst of this, I think we'll all be judged in history on the ways that we stepped up or did not step up uh, for the people who are most vulnerable in this pandemic. And so I just want to underscore uh, that the you know president's focus on equity uh, isn't a matter of favoring one group or another. Uh, it is the whole point is to target groups that have been disproportionately affected and have seen way higher rates of morbidity and death in themselves or their loved ones. Uh, and everybody has a stake in making sure that we have an equitable rollout of this pandemic response and that imperative continues. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. All right, Peter. Dr. Sharif El-Nahal, president and CEO of Newark's University Hospital. 
He told CNBC a month ago that at one point the number of residents in that city willing to get vaccinated was measured at about 40 percent. Today that number is up over 60 percent and he believes that's important progress. No matter how bad the surge looks in places like Newark or even parts of New York City, listen to Dr. Kadria Jackson, an emergency physician and medical director from Mount Sinai Morningside in Upper Manhattan. I still do feel that what we experienced in New York last year in March and April definitely helped us to be more compliant with masking and social distances. That I am concerned, yes, that we may get some, uh, some spikes, but I don't believe that we'll ever come close to what we were before just because of how devastating it was for the city. I think there, for majority of New Yorkers, everyone has most likely know someone who was significantly impacted, meaning that either had someone that died or disability uh disabled from COVID in terms of uh, being out of, uh, being ha- having to be in the hospital for long periods of time or just lingering symptoms that I do believe that most people will continue to do social distances, but given the fact that there's still this desire to go back to normal, I, I won't be shocked that we go up, but I don't think we'll come anything close to uh, what we were last year. So this is the ER right now. Dr. Jackson, an African-American physician, married, mother of three, and hero to us, worked the ER at Mount Sinai Morningside a year ago and took time to document some of her experiences on video. In regards to my kids, my eight-year-old definitely understands what's going on. He asked me about the coronavirus and what happens on my shift each day. They definitely notice that mom's not at home as much. Mom's works a lot and that's been stated and it's kind of hard but i think that's what's needed right now dr jackson is still working the emergency room there she spoke to our peter haskell this week about what it was like back in those days and some of the issues she's dealing with today including vaccine equity take us back to this time last year what was it like in the emergency department it was scary. Um, I mean, I, it, that sounds like a very weird term, but it was in the sense that you were, we were packed. There are so many patients and it's not only that there was the volume was overloaded, but they were, there's a diff, there's added complexity with the fact that they were sick. These were patients in critical conditions that you're trying to assist and you're trying to uh, do as best as you can. And still, I think in general, we didn't know as much as we did um, back then as we know now. So it was doing more of a supportive care in regards to trying to alleviate their symptoms and not treating because we didn't have a a treatment. Um, It was definitely scary. And then you have the, you do have that as a, first responder and on the front lines, you have to keep in mind also your safety. So you're trying to care for others and trying to also keep yourself um, safe. So definitely scary, um, anxiety filled. It was, I think at that time, it was a time when uh, many people were challenged, not just physically, but mentally in regarding their ability to work and then care for others. 
So that's what I want to ask you about. Is there a way to describe that toll both physically and emotionally? You know, you're worried about your physical well-being. You're trying to care for patients. You're seeing this, you know, this surge of severe sickness and death. How do you deal with that? You know what? Everyone is different. Um, So I can't speak in what everyone else did, but I am very spiritual. So it's more of uh, relying on that, um, relying on your faith that you're going to, you're doing the right thing. You're you're going to um, try and protect yourself with your clinical knowledge and what you know can keep you safe, but still having faith that you're going to be safe. Um, It's just hard. It's hard being at work and seeing people need you and then not being able to assist and it's maybe not where I think at that time we may not have been doing the normal things like oh giving medication to um, to treat in regards to get rid of the issue but just being there to support because at that time families couldn't be with their loved ones in the emergency department so we were doing just holding patients' hands. There were people who were, I remember there were physicians who used their own cell phones so that um, family members could FaceTime with their loved ones outside the hospital. So it wasn't a traditional, uh, apply do the traditional medical care. It's doing whatever was needed at that moment to help that patient. It sounds so painful and demanding. How how do you deal with a patient like that? Maybe somebody who dies, and then you've got to move on to the next. How do you stay focused and not get caught up in that? Um, well, you, I definitely feel that people do need, and we at times that you need to take a moment. Um, each death, either do a moment of uh, silence, uh, small prayer, whatever you need to. Because I think each one of these, I don't think any one of us uh, were robots that we could just, we did move on, but you can't just, oh, patient A, unfortunately, passed and move on to B. You had to do some closure. And we tried to do that as much as possible in terms of moments of silence, prayers, um, just talking to the team, making sure everyone was well, even if it wasn't a long period of time. And like, you are not going to spend 15 minutes, but I think it helped us be be I help our emotional health and our mental health by us being a family at work and then being able to let's move on and try and prevent this episode that happened with this patient with another one do you think you still carry some of that psychological trauma with you today uh, <laughs> um, you know what I know I'll never forget what experienced last year I remember low points where I even questioned was like wow can I go on is this right for me and of course each time I I ended with yes I can um I haven't I don't I'm I think I'm at a point right now that I um, I believe I'm able to function and uh care for patients the same way I did before COVID, but I think also it actually made me more um, empathetic because of what has happened. 
it just makes you more grateful for everything. So it's definitely there, but it, I, and it's def- some people who would describe it as a trauma, yes, but it's a trauma that I personally, I think, has helped to make me better in general as a physician and a person because seeing that much grief, seeing that much loss that of life that makes you really appreciative for anything right now, and that's how I'm viewing it. You know, it, it, with that said, I, I want to ask it to you this way. What what did you learn about yourself last year? Oh, um, I learned that I can work a lot more in regards to um, physically. Like, I could push myself harder than I experienced before. But I also um, learned that I want to, that it's more than just, I, I, I think I, I want to make a connection more. And that has changed me in the sense that in my interactions right now, it's understanding and recognizing that everyone who presents, no one wants to be in an emergency room. And I knew that before. It's not like you don't come there for fun. (laughs) But it's taken that time to just go move away from just the clinical issue, but also that personal. And I actually enjoy that. And I do that or like a relationship-centered discussion or interaction with patients, and I enjoy that. So definitely learned that this is something that I enjoy, and it's adding adding that into my daily practice. But it's, other than, I I mean, the clinical knowledge, it's the medical knowledge in terms of the diagnoses or my treatments, it's the same. You continue as a physician, you're going, you're continuously learning because you cannot, we're not in a field that we can just, once we graduate medical school, that's it. But I, so that continues, but I think definitely adding the other things has made me better. And that's what I'm, I have added since COVID. Something stuck out to us this week in our conversations with both Dr. Jackson and Dr. Elnahal in Newark. Many of the people working on the front lines of the COVID fight today were there last year and frankly never left. So if you think you're tired of the pandemic, how about them? Peter Haskell spoke to Dr. Jackson about that. Remember, she's a married mother of three. We asked her about how she handled her family a year ago. So, yeah, it's, that was a big personal decision. And I think um, some people agreed with me, some people did not. I, I know a number of my colleagues, because um, I do have uh, young kids. I At that time, I had three kids, I had three kids under eight um, and a husband. And some of my colleagues, they decided to move into um, a hotel or just uh, rent certain places so that they could so that they could keep their family safe. I know the type of person that I am and the type of person my family is. I think to get through um, what happened, I needed to see them. So that meant, though, of course I'm concerned and I want to make sure my family's safe. That I had to do other things. So. I had the ability, and it's all based on your resources, right? In my home, I was able to, I had a separate entrance that only I entered, um, so kept the family away from it. I had there, that entrance was a full bathroom, and I, I had clothes for the car, clothes for the work. <laughs> so whatever I traveled into work, 
in. That's what I traveled, and I changed there immediately before I left work. I changed, um, came home, changed at the door, went straight to take showers. Of course, you're going to do your normal hand hygiene all the time in regards to washing your hands and things like that. But these are added things that I had to do because I wanted to see my family. And it it helped me because that was my uh, mental sanity was at least coming home and seeing them. I applaud the people who are able to be away and just maybe talk to their family or see them on the phone, but I that wasn't me. But I needed to do other things to make sure that I kept them safe, and it worked out for us. And I didn't mind it, no matter what annoying thing of like changing multiple times, it didn't matter having your hand sanitizer everywhere in the car at, as soon as you enter. It it worked for me. I want to switch gears and just talk about vaccine equity. It's something that the city and the state has talked about from the beginning, but yet communities of color are not being vaccinated and anywhere close to the same rate as whites. Why do you think that is, and how do we improve this? In general, there's mistrust. There's mistrust about the vaccine um, because of the fact of, one, people are concerned about the speed. There's report and, and, and um, and how fast it was released. People are concerned about the fact that this new, what we keep term, what people have termed as new uh, technology with the mRNA. So I think that has added. So in general, I do believe that there's a widespread um, disconnect because I speak to multiple different people and it's not just African-Americans or um patients of color, communities of color that are concerned. Clearly, though, there is a difference. And I think the best thing that we can do to correct that is um, education. I am um, a physician of color. I am African-American. So I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of pushing someone, pressuring anyone to do something that they're not comfortable with. But I will talk and speak my story and um, Tell about what has happened to me to all to anyone has who has asked. I've um, I've received the vaccine. I have had both doses of the Pfizer. I've not had any complications. Uh, so as much as I could educate others, I will. And there is going to be always because before COVID, there were people who uh, were skeptical of vaccines, and it just added to. I think COVID in general, because when when it came, then there were people skeptical of the disease. Oh, it's not really there. I heard people stating that um, it's manufactured in the sense that the healthcare community is doing that. And they made it, they politicized um, COVID, which is unfortunately, I remember standing in line because the schools now, you had to stand, we had to stand six feet apart for each kid to have their, one, the attestation for the parent to say that the, uh, their child had no um, no symptoms and the temperature check. So while I'm standing in line, I'm hearing two mothers speak, and one mother was saying that, oh, um, the doctors are lying. They're adding COVID to everything so that they could get paid more. I really wanted to jump in that conversation, but I just I was like, you know what? I'm not going to get into a conversation at my son's school. 
But it's like, what are we, why, I don't know, understand how people believe that this is a lie. I don't add COVID to anything. It doesn't help my pay. I don't get paid more in any way. Uh, but it's, it's just, I think it's the type of um, era that we're in. We're just, we are at a time where we just don't trust each other. And it's just have gotten worse over the years. I'm actually, I'm somewhat concerned to see where are we, where are we going to go? Because it's like anything that someone says, um, is it val- the first thing, is that true? Is it made up? There's people, there's things, people are purposely sending out misinformation for their own personal agenda. And it's just unfortunate. And it's especially like you brought up the equity in vaccine. I'm sorry that I drifted off a bit. All we can do is educate. We make it and make the access easy if the individuals choose to. I do not feel in mad, like, I do not believe in mandating because I think that builds more anger. Um, I do feel that prior issues that has happened in regards to mistrust, and it's that people um, people bring up um, Tuskegee, but it's not just Tuskegee. Uh, discrim- uh, discrimination in healthcare in terms of uh, people of color has been existing for before Tuskegee, after Tuskegee, and to this day. There was a big emphasis over the past two years in terms of uh, maternal mortality for African-American women and because there was a significant increase that they had higher complications. And in the States, why with the United States of America, why are we having these complications a higher in regards to just a particular um, race, there's problems in our in our medical society that we do need to fix. And I think all these different things that, in terms of how we give medicine access to care, education, um, that's what's leading to these issues with equity with the vaccine. You've so been. <laughs> You've been very kind with your time. One one more question for you. When when you consider all that we've been through over the past year, when you look to the future, what do you see and what do you think? So with everything that we've been through in the past year, I'm a little bit, um, to be honest, I, I can't, I am eager and curious to see what's next. I think in general, we COVID is not going to be the first challenge uh, from uh, uh, in terms of medical or even might be um, any like pandemic. It could be a medical pandemic or just any worldwide issue that we're going to face. And it was a big challenge for us. And I, to be honest, I don't know if we, if you had to give the world or each country a scorecard just in general, I don't think we did that well. (laughs) And so it's, I'm just trying to figure out what's next. Everyone wants to go back to normal, but there is no back to normal. It's how do we improve? We, We went through this. What did we learn from it? What are we going to do to improve if anything like this happens again? And how are we getting ready for the next challenge as uh, humankind that we're going to um, that we're going to face? 
Our thanks to Dr. Kadria Jackson for all she has done for us in New York. We will never be able to repay her or the staff there for the selfless sacrifice of helping our city survive. And thanks to Dr. Sharif Elnahal for the good work he and his team continue doing at the University Hospital in Newark. That's 880 In-Depth for this week. Peter Haskell and I, Tim Scheld, are the executive producers. That's just a fancy way of saying that Peter and I talk all the time about stories we want to know more about and we want to put it in a podcast. We hope that helps you, and if it does, share our stories, please. Subscribe so you don't have to miss a week. Find us wherever you get your audio. Just look for 880 In-Depth, and as always, please be safe. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.